Welcome to the Mar Experience Stories of Recovery. I'm Matt Sheb. In this episode, I speak with Dr. Brian Moore, a psychologist and interventionist. Drawing from his decades of experience working with people suffering from the disease of addiction and those closest to them, Dr. Moore shares his insights about how to talk to your loved ones about their addiction. He also explains the importance of boundaries and how family members are not responsible for their loved one's disease, but that they can help provide opportunities for their loved ones to get help. We'd also like to thank Kaiser Permanente of Georgia for their generous support for Mar Addiction Treatment Center and the services that we offer here. I'm Dr. Brian Moore. Um, I have been in Atlanta since 1985 and had a 30-year career as a psychologist um, that uh, eventually took me to a place where uh, my practice evolved to an exclusive focus on providing intervention services to families and corporate clients. Uh, so since the mid to late 90s, uh, I've done nothing other than that. Um, and so now uh, we continue to provide, you know, intervention services. And I, I also provide uh, some aftercare services so that, you know, clients that need uh, monitoring and, and aftercare in, in terms of, uh, you know, uh, continuing kind of care, uh, case management, that kind of thing, I provide that. But I'm not the generally the, the direct provider. Um, I'm more the director of the, the treatment program. And so what got you interested in, do, in that line of work? I, I tell you, originally, this is one of those things where you don't know what's happening when it happens. Uh, back in 1986, I was working as a psych senior psychologist for the state of Georgia, and they actually asked me if I wanted to go to a training on intervention. They had a slot, and they were looking for who to send. And I really did, Matt, think, well, let's see, it's a free trip few days away from the office, continuing education credits for my license. Sure, I'll mm -hmm. go. You go to things. Yeah. Uh, I had no idea how life-changing it would be. And for me, as a psychologist, going, uh, I got trained for the, through the Johnson Institute. Um, I realized right away that that intervention was for more than just alcoholism or addiction to other substances, because I realized that there were lots of people struggling with a variety of issues where denial was a, a common you know, theme to where they were at in their process. Uh, they didn't appreciate how ill they were or how much help they might need. Um, and families felt completely hopeless and helpless. And to be quite honest, we're often being told by professionals that there was nothing they could do. Um, and so for me, um, I just like a light bulb lit up and realized, no, there is something that people can do. You know, I, I do believe that in Al-Anon, you know, with the three C's, um, that you can't, didn't cause it, you can't control it, you can't cure it. Um, but I know that we can provide opportunities for the people we love to get the help that they need to learn about how to be in recovery. And so intervention for me is never about quitting something. It's not about quitting drinking uh, or drugging, uh, you know, or any of the other maladies we run across, whether it's eating disorders or spending or gambling. It's not about quitting. I always tell my families, and, and I think it's, you know, uh, an enlightenment for them to realize that quitting is is completely necessary and yet insufficient first step to getting sober, clean and sober and into recovery. And so, you know, for me, it's about intervention is about treatment. 
Um, and treatment is about how people learn to be in recovery. Um, and so for, you know, so many people um, who have been told by other professionals, to be quite honest, mm -hmm. many times, you know, that there's nothing for you to do because, you know, they aren't going to get better until they want to. And yet those same professionals would be knowledgeable enough to turn around and say, you know, that denial is the cornerstone of addiction. And so we're waiting for someone who's in full-blown denial uh, to wake up one day and miraculously say, and, and now today, yeah, I, I want to go to treatment today. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we find, and I think anybody in the treatment fields find, everybody's had an intervention. Everybody. Now, most people still, even today, you know, 30 years later, don't have interventions with people like me. But I find everybody has been intervened on. Unfortunately, many of those interventions have been done by the cold, cruel world. And so people are going around in their active addiction until the world has intervened oftentimes. So the world intervenes by, you know, uh, taking their job away from them. Or the world intervenes because their spouse leaves them. Um, or the world intervenes because they get ill. Or the world intervenes because they have a car accident. Or the world intervenes because they've been arrested. And all of a sudden, treatment seems like a better idea on those days. And, and so for me, I realize, you know, that at least in the model of intervention that I facilitate, that many people have these, you know, illusions about intervention. Um, among them, you know, are that people feel like that, uh, you know, intervention should be a last ditch effort. So I'm the guy they'll come to when they've tried everything else or they think they have. Right. And so I oftentimes just simply have been, you know, in the position of, of wanting to advocate that, you know, that addictive disease is the only area of healthcare that I'm aware of where the general attitude in the world is it's not bad enough yet. Um, anywhere else in healthcare, we would be outraged. Mm -hmm. You know, we're constantly looking for tests to identify diseases earlier before they do as much damage. We're wanting to have treatment that's aggressive and helps to get people, you know, to a better place before they're so, you know, badly affected by whatever the disease is, except for addiction. In addiction, what I hear is, well, we knew they had a problem, but, you know, it just didn't seem like it was that bad yet. And so the question I ask my families oftentimes is, well, so you're telling me that you were waiting for it to get that bad. And I'll ask them, define for me, what is that bad? So I get all kinds of different answers, but, you know, among them are common ones or, you know, well, you know, this is the old, uh, you know, myths about what is an alcoholic, what is an addict. Well, that's a person who does nothing but drink or use drugs all day long. You know, that's a person who doesn't work. That's a person who lives under the bridge and has a brown paper bag under, you know, with them. Uh, you know, these are the people who that their addiction is just everything in their lives. And I keep telling to them, you're absolutely right. Those are people who have addictive disease. Maybe 3% 
of the total population mm -hmm. of people who have, you know, addicted to. I said, the other 97% are looking like you and me. Mm -hmm. I said, you know, you're working with them. You know, you're taking your kids to school to be with them. You know, you're going to have them treated by the doctors that have this disease. You know, you're consulting attorneys. You're doing everything everybody does in the world because that's where 97% of the people with this mm. disease are. And yet you're wanting to wait for your family member to be one of the 3%. And I say to him, I say, you know, so if they had cancer, what you're saying is that you don't want your family member to get treated until they are emaciated, nothing but skin and bones, have no strength to be able to, to walk and ambulate anymore, um, because then you'll recognize they have cancer and you'll take them for treatment. And, of course, that's not what they want. Mm -hmm. And yet, with addiction, that's how they function. Why is that? What, what do you mechanisms are at work in the family's mind to have that opposite approach to addiction than they would to say cancer? I think it's all rooted in the enabling process. You know, again, I, I think that, that we've done, we as treatment professionals have done a, uh, an inadequate job at educating the world because I think most people in the world find that enabling um, is kind of like being charged with a crime. You know, there's misdemeanor enabling and then there's felony enabling, you know. And so people nonetheless engage in it because, in truth, enabling is only done by people who care for, who love the addict, the alcoholic. Um, and it's done because it is someone's effort to help. And that help is usually done by family members or friends who are trying to provide help in the way they would anybody else in any other type of situation. And so when people are down on their luck and don't have an income, we provide financial support. Um, you know, we uh, may know that they aren't good with finances after a while, so we don't provide cash anymore, but we will give them the Publix, mm -hmm. you know, gift card because we want them to buy food which they oftentimes then just sell at 50% of its value to get whatever cash they can for another purpose. It, it's all done by folks who love you and want to help. And they feel like that if they help effectively enough, if they love the person enough in the way that they always have thought about those things, that that will help the person get better. And so it, it continues to be, I think, the struggle that the world has with the notion that addiction is a disease. Mm -hmm. And that the person didn't ask for it, you know, they never intended to have it. And they're not going to get rid of it simply because somebody loves them enough. So do you, the, the thing that our family counselors say here a lot is that addiction is also a family disease. Mm. Do you kind of, because from what you're saying, it, it sounds like a lot of the work that you are going to have to do on the front end is getting the family members to kind of drop the denial. Well, I think one of the secrets of my work, so let's not tell anybody. Okay. <laughs> Just between the two of us. I'll hit pause. <laughs> uh, you know, is that, that the interventions I do um, have two targets. The family usually, and that's the most common client I work with, is a family group of some kind. 
comes to me because, again, they're focused on their identified patient and they want that person to go to treatment. The truth is, yes, that is a legitimate goal for our work together. But in also great truth, the only way to get there is because we're going to be doing a lot of intervening with that family group. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, they're not going to be effective at getting the person to go. Um, I think that that's something I don't articulate quite that directly with people. Right. It's just simply the process. Mm -hmm. um, so a lot of the work that I do has to do with helping families understand the concept of boundary. Um, understanding that boundaries are not punishments. Understanding that boundaries aren't manipulations and ways to trick people into doing something. Uh, but understanding that boundaries are all about information. You know, boundaries are about, I, I tell people all the time, I say, but look, I want your person to always feel like, like if it's an adult child um, and it's the parents, I'll say, you know, look, I want that person to always know that your door is open to them. But boundaries will help put a shape to that door and help them understand how they get to enter. Because, you know, healthy families aren't going to tolerate active addiction in their midst, you know. That simply is, is not healthy and productive for that person. And this is so hard for families to come to understand because they believe that the, what they're being told inaccurately is that somehow they should abandon that person or that somehow, you know, that person should be, you know, just simply kicked out. Um, I, I hear about I won't put them on the street. And I never want people to do that to the person. Mm -hmm. However, healthy boundaries may be such that the person is faced with a choice that they can be a part of the family by getting into recovery, or they may have to choose that, you know, some alternate that we don't find acceptable is where they're going to have to go. Um, again, I work with a lot of different ages of people, all pretty much 18 and up, and in that young adult group in particular, Part of what I, I find is that, you know, people have an idea that that because the person has gotten to a certain age that, well, they're an adult. And I can tell you for certain that age has nothing to do with the definition of being an adult. Uh, so 18 doesn't matter and 21 doesn't matter. Um, I see people who are, you know, 61 year old adolescents. Yeah. And I have seen 14 and 15 year old adults. Uh, because the difference is that, you know, an adult is aware of the fact that they are responsible for the choices they make. And it's when the family allows that person to take responsibility and ownership of their choices that things change. Enabling is always about trying to get between the person and the negative consequence of their decisions. And so, again, the person gets arrested and mom and dad fly into the situation to, you know, get an attorney mm -hmm. and post bail and, uh, you know, cause all of that negative consequence to literally not be experienced by the client, you know. So the person has made a choice. In my view, I always construct it down simply to they're still not getting treatment and because they're not getting treatment, they're continuing to make decisions that have negative consequences around their addiction. And yet those consequences are falling squarely on families' shoulders. So family bears the literal financial expense, but also the emotional expense of 
being the ones to pay the bail, being the ones to feel like they've got to keep things in order, being the ones to feel like they have to make sure that person gets to court on time, being the ones to make sure that everything else in their lives is going in a different direction than it is. And of course, it never works. Mm -hmm. And so it's only when people start to take care of themselves by having healthy boundaries, not by rejecting, but simply by saying, you know, look, you're capable of doing this and I'm going to let you do it. And so people are capable of getting into recovery. We need to let them do it. And I think that, you know, for so many families, it really is about constructing the choices. And the choice here is I can help them get to the treatment they need where they will have shelter, where they'll be fed, where they will have all of the therapeutic, you know, support that they need to learn how to be in recovery in a positive way. Um, or I can keep trying to provide piecemeal, you know, rescues that actually just support the disease to continue. And of course, the other thing they learn is that the disease is progressive. So despite all of those efforts, things actually seem to keep getting worse, even though they provided more and more help over time. I tell families that everything that they do in their relationship with the addict in their life going forward is going to either fit in the bucket of I am facilitating your decision and commitment to treatment and recovery, or there's going to be one other bucket, and that is I'm facilitating your disease. And I don't believe there really is any in, in between. Um, I think we're either going to learn how to have boundaries and stick to them, or we're not going to have boundaries and we're not going to stick to them. And that leads us to one of those two places so that we need to be. And, and as a parent, uh, I always go back to the notion that I think that the role of parent is not always to be out there guiding our children's boat. I, I do think that maybe the role of parent is to be um, a mooring spot mm -hmm. where they know that where you are. They know who you are. They know what you're willing to tolerate. They know how you're willing to help and that you'll always be there for them in that way. Um, and then it's about letting them go and not trying to control them so that they learn how to do it for themselves. Because enabling is always about doing something for the addict that they reasonably ought to be doing themselves. Does that ever happen that... Um somebody, a family will contact you and they think, okay, this is, we've hit a new low here in terms of how much we're experiencing as a family. And then for whatever reason, they, they don't follow through or they can't hold a boundary. And then they find that, oh, wait, it, it not only has our loved one's disease progressed, the family <laughs> chaos is So progressed. a common, common kind of uh, situation that I see that very dynamic is that I will get contacted oftentimes by a sibling, an adult sibling, and they get it. They see that their brother or sister is really significantly addicted. And I'll hear then from them, but mom and dad keep trying to help and they're not ready, you know, uh, to do anything else. And what we find is that that family system a lot of the times then doesn't even though the sibling is trying to lead the way. Mm -hmm. And we try to help work with them so that if I can help them predict the future, if I can say, you know, look, 
given my experience, things are going to progress. I don't know quite how much time that will take. It's different for different people. But things will not get better, you know, until the family starts to get better. Mm -hmm. And the family has control of their piece of the puzzle. And so I oftentimes want people to realize that all of their efforts, you know, benevolent as they may be, to try and take the, the piece of the puzzle that is the identified client mm -hmm. and to try and make that fit different mm -hmm. are never going to work. What works is when they start to focus on the piece of the puzzle that they are. Mm. And when they start to work on their ability to get better, the client will not at least stay the same. You know, I wish I could say they always get better, but the truth is they don't. They're, this disease is, is an insidious and terrible disease. And some people just simply don't get better. We know that. We don't have control of that either. Mm -hmm. What we do have control over is putting ourselves in the best position to put them in the best position to get better. And that means, you know, providing healthy boundaries. That means providing legitimate, tangible opportunities to get the resources that the addict and alcoholic needs to get better. Um, and then if they're not going to choose to take that, to not continue to enable. Mm -hmm. You said earlier, boundaries are all about information. What does that mean? Yeah. Um, every relationship has a set of boundaries. Every relationship. We're used to that, but again, we just don't use that terminology in most relationships. So if I'm an employer and I offer you a job, I have a set of boundaries that I, I put out there for you. I say, Matt... You know, um, I'm so excited that you're coming on board. Um, I need you to be here Monday through Friday. <clears throat> I need you to get here by nine in the morning. I need you to stay until five in the afternoon. Um, and we pay um, every other Friday. I write checks and I give them mm -hmm. to you. Um, now, curiously, we don't often go beyond that because I think so many things are just assumed and right, right. You know, taken for granted because we understand Boundaries, we just don't, again, use that term. Sure. And so there is an implicit kind of message there that says, and if you don't respect my boundaries, which is Monday to Friday, nine to five, if you only come on Mondays, Thursdays, and sometimes Fridays, and you get here at 10, but you leave at two, and you come back at three, but you go home at four, um, I'm not going to write you the check. Mm -hmm. In fact, I'm probably not going to keep you employed. Yeah. Okay. And so we understand that there are a set of boundaries in our relationship. We don't think that the boss is being terrible to us because they have boundaries. We can take the job or we don't have to. Right. You know, we exercise a decision. But once we take the job, we understand Oh, that's the boundaries. Yeah. And we're not surprised when the boss says, I don't want to pay you for all that time you didn't come to work. Mm -hmm. And yet again, in addiction, we kind of get twisted and turned around. So boundaries are about information. Boundaries are the information that the other person needs to know how and what kind of relationship I'm going to allow you to have with me. So as a family, maybe as a parent, 
of an adult alcoholic or addict, um, I'm in the position of being able to define, you know, what kind of relationship we're going to have. Where are the limits to that relationship? Um, again, you know, you're an adult and yet you keep coming and asking me to make you a dependent. Okay. Well, if that dependency is because of your active disease of addiction uh, and I meet your, your demand for letting you be dependent, then I'm enabling. Mm. Okay. My boundary is to say, I'm not going to provide financial support to you if you're not doing what you can if you're not addressing your piece of the puzzle by actively pursuing recovery. You know, we know when people are making legitimate and honest efforts towards their recovery. And when they're not, our boundaries should say, I'm not going to make that okay. I'm not going to facilitate your disease. I'm only here, and I, I love you, so I'm only here to facilitate your recovery. And that feels in the beginning to families so backwards, mm-hmm. you know, cold or mean. I oftentimes want to kind of buffer that for them mm-hmm. by helping them to have a construct where I say, well, look, you know, if I'm the addict <clears throat> and you're my family, um, I think you're dealing with two of me. Uh, I think, you know, that, you know, Brian, your son, your brother, your husband, your friend, your coworker, whatever I am to you. And that's the guy you have known forever and you really do love and appreciate and and care about. And then there's Brian the addict. And uh, Brian the addict, I got to tell you, doesn't doesn't care at all about you. Brian the addict has one and only one focus in its existence. His existence is all about his addiction. And you just become something to manipulate in the service of that goal. Um, He may look nice. He may talk nice. He may do a lot of great things, but those are all usually just to facilitate his ongoing purpose of servicing the disease. As disease progresses, you start to see more of Brian the addict and less of Brian, that guy that you raised, known forever, loved, cared about. But you keep trying to have the relationship with Brian, Mm -hmm. and that's what makes you so vulnerable to Brian the addict. And so now, you know, you have to learn that boundaries are about telling Brian the addict that the only way that you have of standing up for Brian, who you care about, is by standing up to Brian the addict. Mm. Brian the addict, if not met with healthy boundaries, is always going to take advantage of people who want to have a relationship with Brian. Make sense? Absolutely. And even probably take Brian the addict's probably going to take advantage of the healthy Brian too. Oh, always. Yeah. Always. I, I, I mean, you know, again, I, I'd say, you know, denial is not about lying to other people. Denial is about lying to yourself. Yeah. You know, once Brian the addict convinces Brian, well, the dissemination of that lie to family and friends in the world isn't even a lie. It, yeah. It's just sharing what we've convinced Brian reality is. Yeah, right. You know, right. The, there's that that basic difference in how addicts view the world from people who don't struggle with that disease. And that is that the people around the addict, the families and other folks in their lives, they will always identify sooner usually that the addiction is the problem. Yeah. 
the addict will always know they have a long list of problems, <laughs> but that their drug or the focus of their addiction is in their mind the answer, the only thing that helps them with their problems. And so this is why, you know, there's always this conflict and people kind of don't get it because they keep saying, you know, it's so obvious, you know, that his drinking or his drugging or whatever. It's just, you know, that's what's causing all the problems. Right. And I want to say no, you know, in his world, that, that drug, you know, the booze, whatever it is, that's the only thing that helps with the problem. And so you're asking them to give up what they view as their best, if not only, coping resource. And I think it's eye-opening for families when they finally kind of get that their brain doesn't work the same as the person in their active addiction. If you could kind of walk us through what you do as an interventionist, like where are families usually in the process of the disease? I mean, I'm sure there's a whole spectrum, but Kind of typically, what what are some points where family members finally think, okay, it's time to to call an interventionist to to bring someone else in? It kind of goes back to that that idea of things have gotten bad enough. You know, um, one of the questions I'll typically ask in that first phone call is, hey, this has been going on for weeks, months, years. Why are we talking today? Yes, you know, because something has usually happened that that keyed them to now take a step they haven't before. And so, you know, usually again, we'll, I'll start to hear about how the world is maybe starting to intervene with the person and that scares the family. Mm -hmm. um, you know, a coworker that they know well has said, you know, Hey, Brian's job, I'm not sure he's kind of, you know, on the edge of losing it. You know, I think they, they feel like, you know, that something's going on. Um, or again, there'll be a behavior that in the eyes of some family somehow has crossed the line. Um, a mom who uh, goes to pick up uh, on carpool the kids at school and she's already been drinking before she went. Um, you know, it's a line. People all of a sudden say, oh, things have gotten bad, that bad. Mm -hmm. And now they're calling. So that's the most common place that I pick up my clients. Um, and it's different for different people. I always find it interesting to find, okay, why is today? Right, right. Yeah, it's different for different families. Um, and again, I think, you know, for some folks, uh, what I find is that uh, the vast majority of people in their addiction um, are oftentimes being allowed to wait way too long. You know, we are waiting for them to be in a crisis. Mm -hmm. And yet, crisis sometimes is also, you know, I, I remember the story that I think in, in Chinese they say that, or Mandarin, they say that the word crisis uh, is uh, two symbols. One of them is about danger and the other is about opportunity mm -hmm. because crisis develops a, a sense of things being out of order and in things being thrown up and out of order, we have a chance to bring new order. And so there's a crisis. And for all of us, I think that's an opportunity. For the addict, it's opportunity for the family, for those that want to help them. Uh, we have a chance to come in and start to identify how can we bring new order to this since things are so crazy and out of order at the moment. Um, and that's where they'll open themselves to considering something new. And again, unfortunately, a lot of times I believe they come to me thinking I'm going to tell them that they need to get really mean 
um, and, you know, be really angry mm -hmm. and stomp their feet and demand that the person, you know, go to treatment. And that's not what I do. What I do is bring people in and we spend time with them so that, you know, in the preparation meeting for me, that's a, there's a day before the intervention that we spend hours together. And, uh, what I want people to do is to kind of get to a point where they understand that that I believe the, the most powerful force that we have to bring to bear on this person is the fact that all of the people in the room, that addict sees as folks who love them, care about them, want the best for them, and that that, that is a more powerful approach. That dynamic uh, of having people who care is so much more powerful than anybody being angry anybody threatening somebody to be uh, would ever be. And it simply doesn't play the game that I think most of the active addiction in, in people's brains wants to play. Mm -hmm. I say, you know, look, if you want to get in an argument, I said, you're going to lose every time. You know, whether you think you lose the intellectual argument isn't important. What you'll lose is the fact that the argument becomes an excuse for them to go out and use again. Right. Um, and so now what we need to do is to really focus on the fact that I care about you and I'm worried about you. And here's why. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and once, you know, people can hear why, it's also that I have a very, you know, identified, tangible pathway for you to travel to get healthy. And so we provide that opportunity. And the intervention then the next day is about that group coming together expressing that love and concern for that person, giving that person the chance to make a decision. In intervention, as I do it, we only want two things from the identified addict, and that is we'd like them to listen and we'd like them to make a decision. We don't need anything else. Mm. And so, you know, we're really not demanding you yeah. know, in the process. And so at the end of the day, we have to also be, you know, at peace with the idea that they may not choose the way we want them to. Mm -hmm. And that's where boundaries come in, because if they're not ready to choose recovery, treatment, then boundaries become crucial because boundaries are how the intervention process continues. I'm always battling with my clients the idea that we're going to do an intervention because I think what that is is it nominalizes what I do. Um, in other words, we're – we have an intervention. That's a noun. We're going to do a thing. It's an yeah, event. Right, right. And it's going to start at 8 o'clock and it's going to you know, end at 10 and we'll either succeed or we'll fail. And no, that's not the way this works. We're going to be engaged in a verb. We're going to be intervening. Mm. We've already started before we ever get there. We're going to continue to intervene on the day that we meet with the addict. And despite whatever they say, yes or no, I will go to treatment. We're going to have to continue to intervene beyond that point because those boundaries that everyone is so frightened by in the intervention are actually the things that they're going to need to be putting in place to support the person's recovery. So if you tell a person, for example, hey, Brian, you know, I got to tell you, you know, I know we've gone out for beers after work in the past, but I've come to realize that I feel like that's just me telling you that I don't think you have a problem. And I'm not willing to do that anymore. So I'm going to set a boundary. I don't want alcohol to be a part of our relationship anymore. Well, it's going to be crucial, even if the person goes to treatment and gets into recovery, for them to have people in their lives who say, I don't want alcohol to be a part of our relationship. Yeah. Only, interestingly, the thing that changes is not the boundary. It is the person who's hearing it. So it's that, that again, that identified patient, that addict, the alcoholic, 
that in recovery goes, dude, you mean you'd really go to the Braves game and you don't you mm-hmm. don't care whether we go get 40 ounces, you know, during yeah, right, right. You know, the third yeah. inning? No, man, I, I never went to drink with you. I yeah. always went for the game and enjoyed being with you. I still want to go to the game. I still want to be with you. Yeah. That's crucial, right? Yeah. And so now the only thing that changes is that that person hasn't gotten into recovery to a point where they don't hear that statement, that boundary, as something that threatens them. Because yeah. now it's Brian. Right. You know, who goes, man, I, a lot of people I thought wouldn't have any life. Right, <laughs> you know? right, right, right. Uh, Brian the addict, yeah, he feels threatened by people who say they want to drink with him, you mm-hmm. know, because well, what fun is that and what good is it, you know? Yeah. Um, and so I've got to stand up to Brian the addict to stand up for Brian, you know, the person. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's where we're going with things. And we're going to have to continue to do that into treatment, beyond treatment. You know, this is where we're all going to simply continue to practice good recovery. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so much of that it sounds like from the example you just gave is, is about what they do after that meeting is over too. It is. It's about being committed to being a part of the treatment program. Mm-hmm. You know, again, good treatment programs, <clears throat> certainly Mar has a good family program. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't imagine encouraging people to go to a treatment program that wouldn't have a good family program. It is about helping them to prepare to go, to know mm-hmm. that that's a critical piece of the puzzle, um, to know that that's not just about what you'll learn. It's also about making that statement to the person you love who's in treatment that you're a part of this with them, um, that you're going to do it together, um, that that isn't about shipping somebody off like there's some broken toy to get repaired and then have them come back. We're going to go and do this together, and we're going to keep doing it together, mm. even after you get out of that treatment program. Um, so families have to be a part of the process. We continue to intervene now and later. Mm. What would you say is are some of the biggest mistakes that you see people make or that you hear about um, people making when they decide to start talking to their loved one about their substance use? <clears throat> Well, maybe it's not a shock I, that I would think that people can do interventions without interventionists. <laughs> and I think some of them get where they want to go. Uh, I don't hear about those, um, understandably. Uh, but I think that so many times <clears throat> families don't do all of their due diligence and their preparation. Mm-hmm. And so those who want to try it without having a professional involved <clears> – <throat> oftentimes really just think it is about sitting the person down and having that come to Jesus meeting um, and demanding that things be different. And what usually happens then is they recreate simply another family argument or fight. Um, Only this time they're now alienating themselves further from the person, um, you know, so that it makes being effective beyond that more difficult. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that again, by the time people get there, they usually get there through frustration. Um, and so they just say, as family, I can't deal with this anymore. We've got to sit down and deal with this. And again, that frustration and oftentimes the anger that is being manifested out of that is where they're coming from. Mm-hmm. And again, I find that that's not a very effective way of intervening. Um I think the other thing I hear a lot is that people will say, I haven't talked to him or her about this. And I'd like to kind of have 
an opportunity to just one-on-one, you know, have that conversation. I don't know that I think that's a bad thing or a wrong thing to do. What I do find is that a lot of times, especially since we've gotten a place where they're talking to me, <clears throat> those efforts, those one-on-one interventions, so to speak, what they're actually doing is is rehearsing the addict and saying no. Mm. Um, addicts are much better at saying no to us individually than when we form a group and come together unified at one time. Uh, I think that addiction is a, a lot of times created an individual who kind of is a chameleon. And so in active addiction, I think we see people manipulate those in their lives by kind of shifting to this color for that person and that color for that one over there. And so when we have them come into the room uh, in an intervention with a group, uh, I oftentimes equate it to that chameleon being thrown on a plaid rug. It's like, okay, wow, I don't know what color I'm supposed to be when you're all here at the same time. Because mm. I haven't been telling you this. Right. I was oh, telling wow. you over yeah. there that. Mm-hmm. And so that manipulation is so much more difficult to do. Um I know that, again, I've been doing this for a long time. In the three decades plus that I've been working with families, I've watched the field of, of intervention, if you would, to evolve. Uh, that evolution has meant that there have been a variety of intervention models mm-hmm. um, that are practiced out there. I've gone and done training with many of them. Um, I, I don't know that I think that any of them are bad, <coughs> but for me, um, I've always been trained at doing a very time-focused intervention. So we live now in a place where people are oftentimes exploring uh, what are called invitational models of intervention. You know, they're telling the person, hey, we're going to go get help from somebody. We want you to be a part of it <clears throat> and giving them a chance to join with them in that. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, I don't think that it's bad. I have the objection simply that I think that because this disease is potentially terminal for some people, that taking weeks to do something that we can accomplish in two days, for me, doesn't make sense. I prefer, you know, that I want to get them into uh, treatment and immersed in the kind of care that they need to get better soon. Uh, I've had the opportunity over the years, even with doing it the way I do, to have done the preparation meeting today for an intervention tomorrow, only to get a call late tonight or early tomorrow morning that the person got arrested last night Mm. Um, or that the person is in the hospital. Um, And so I've seen it enough where I I realize it's like, well, why? I don't want to take six weeks or eight weeks to get there. Uh, I want us to go ahead and move. Uh, I also think families do better with that because I think when families do kind of finally get to that point of making yeah. the call, <clears throat> I think that that the kind of you know, the word that we used in school was homeostasis. You know, it's a fancy word. that All it means is that every, you know, human being has this desire to have things stay the same. Yeah. And so when they're in crisis, we either help them bring new order to it in that moment or they want to return to the order that they know. And so if we don't provide them the opportunity to change and do something different, to help the person differently in that moment, in general, what we see is they'll return to what they've been doing, which is the enabling. Mm. And again, things will usually 
calm down a little bit. Even if the person kind of got upset and angry as the addict, they'll, they'll, they'll kind of want to soothe that as well and just get back to the way things were. I was drinking and, you know, yeah, people weren't happy, but they really weren't all that unhappy. And, you know, they pretty much left me alone. And that's really all I want is just to be left alone. Mm -hmm. And the family kind of just wants to not have to get a phone call and deal with a crisis again. And so if we allow them too much time, that's what happens. We just kind of return to that homeostatic yeah. dysfunction. Right. And what I want to see is help people to get out of that and break that cycle. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, so much of this is, it's kind of like you're in the, the, the business of kind of helping people see their denial on Helping people see their denial. I think that's the uh, the identified patient. Yep. Yeah. Um, but maybe I think you know one of the ways I put it to people is that that I'm in the the bottom building business. Okay. Gotcha. You know the myth that I fight out there a lot is that the myth that you know people have to hit rock bottom. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and unfortunately, again, I've seen where rock bottom means people die. Yeah. People lose their freedom. You know. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I can't imagine how many times I've had people say, oh, he's at rock bottom. And I think, oh, my gosh, you know, it can get so much worse than yeah, this. Yeah, right. And it doesn't need to. And so I think what intervention is about is, in fact, helping families to build higher bottoms. Yeah. Everyone here at Mar is a client. If we go out and we ask them, every one of them can tell me and tell you what their bottom was. Mm -hmm. The vast majority of them will not have hit rock bottom. Yeah. Fortunately. Okay, so it's a myth that people have to hit rock bottom to get better. Mm -hmm. Bottom is just the point at which we turned around and went in a different direction. Yeah, and that doesn't have to be as bad, as low as it is for many people. So I think as an interventionist, what I'm helping people do as families is build higher bottoms. Mm -hmm. You know, create a loving crisis in the person's life instead of waiting for the world to create a very cold and uncaring crisis. Sure. Um, I, I oftentimes feel like that I know as an interventionist what it must feel like to be an, ob an obstetrician because I think the thing I share with my OB colleagues in the mm -hmm. world is that I get to be a part of a lot of very new beginnings as far as life is concerned. And that's really exciting to me. You know, people say, how do you do this? You know, it's so stressful. And I think, well, I do this because it's so exciting. It isn't stressful for me. I understand yeah, how stressful yeah. it is for them because, again, that's what they're living in is the stress of the dysfunctional relationship they have and yet not understanding how free they'll be once they start to develop that sense of healthy boundaries and know how to actually assist the person mm -hmm. they care about. And for me, that's all about the excitement of a new beginning. Wow. Yeah. I was gonna, Well, that was going to be one of my questions. What are some of the rewarding moments for you? Oh, they're innumerable. They really are. You know, uh, 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 some people say, you know, you should write a book. And of course, you, you can't write that book. Right? Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> Confidentiality <laughs> right. kind of gets in, the, in your way. I, but I do wish that, that I could share so many of the stories that I have mm -hmm. over the years. But basically, you know, the best reward is getting, you know, a family member, sometimes the identified client themselves contacting me again to say, hey, I've got this long sober and, wow. you know, let me tell you how good life has been. Um, 
and I feel like, again, wow, yeah, I was there at the beginning of that, mm-hmm. you know. Um, I wasn't with you every step of the way since, mm-hmm. um, oftentimes, but but I was I was there the day we began. You're in the delivery room. That's it. Yeah. And, you know, again, I want families sometimes to know, uh, they will say, you know, Brian, you know, what's your success rate? And I always think that's a very um, weird question, uh, an understandable question. Sure. But, but it's a weird question. I think it's weird because of this. families want to understandably ask you, how often do you get people to go to treatment and never drink, never drug again? And of course, I I don't even know what that number really is. I know that in the 30 plus years I've been doing intervention that somewhere, and I don't calculate it anymore day to day, but somewhere between 85 and 90% of the the situations that, that I'll work with families on, the person goes to treatment. Mm -hmm. I consider that certainly to be a success, but it's not really to me the definition of success I'm most concerned about. But I understand that it is the one they're concerned about when they're contacting me. I want to tell people, look, we have the ability to guarantee that we will be 100% successful. And again, see, it comes back to the idea of boundary. Because my boundary is that I'm not here to control that person. I can't make them make the decision I want them to make. What I can do is look at how I'm interacting with them. What I can do is help you to interact with them where you're in full control of your piece of the puzzle. And so if you do what you're capable of doing to help and you do it in a manner you feel good about, we succeeded the person will tell us whether they're going to respond in the way we they, we hope they will or not. But even when they say no, it's still a good day yeah. because the landscape of that addiction has changed that day. We've made progress. And now the boundaries are how we continue to build on that progress from that day. And so we need people to know that, yes, we're interested in whether the person goes to treatment on the day of the intervention itself. <clears throat> but if they say no, we're interested in them going the day after that or the week after that or as soon as possible because we're all about trying to build that bottom. And the boundaries are the blocks that we use to raise that bottom up. And if the family does a good job of following through on the work that we're doing around those boundaries, then they have done everything they can do at that point and they are succeeding. Sometimes, you know, the patient doesn't, you know, respond right away. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's tough. Yeah. But we're left only with whether we have the peace that comes with knowing what role we played. Right. So what's one thing, if you could pass on one thing to family members who are listening, what would it be? Oh, it would be first and foremost that, you know, don't, don't let anybody tell you there's nothing you can do. Um, there's plenty that you can do. Um, and I think for them that to believe that this is a treatable disease, um, you know, that they can't do it for the person, but they can get out of the way. <laughs> and that's what they can learn to do. Right. You know, I have to tell you again, you know, I mentioned to you, you know, I've had family uh, that are in recovery. Um, my sister, uh, again, is an alumna of uh, MAR itself, some now 20 years ago. Um, my son also is in recovery, my oldest son. 
Um, and I, I tell you, with my oldest son in particular, um, was a real eye-opening experience for me because uh, he got better the day I started to get out of the way. Mm. And that's me, dad, the interventionist, psychologist, addiction specialist who knows a lot about this. <laughs> and still, you know, I had a hard time seeing all those trees when I was in the middle of my own forest. Um, and it was only when I finally started to get the hell out of the way that he got better. Wow. That's, that's powerful. Yeah. I couldn't keep the disease from my family. Uh, no different, no, no more special in that regard than mm -hmm. anybody else. Um, and I was affected by the disease in the same way that everybody else is. You have somebody you love and you try desperately, you know, to do everything you can to keep them, you know, from being hurt. But because you can't be in control of the disease, all you really have the real power to do in helping in those traditional ways is by getting in the way of them getting better. Mm. Um, I, I enabled with the best of them. I, I was a felon where it came to enabling for a while. Wow. That shows how tricky this stuff is. Because yeah. that was well into your career, I imagine. Oh, well into my career. Yeah, as yeah. an interventionist. Absolutely. I, uh, let's see. He he was 18 by the time I, I really started to have my own epiphany. Um, and so, let's see. Yeah, I've been doing this work uh, for 18 years. Wow. You know, again, I, I knew all the right information. So how, how do you get, that's, that's fascinating. Um, how do you, as someone who knows the information, how did you get seduced into going into the same patterns that you advise people yeah. into getting well, into? Well, again, I don't know if you've ever heard, you know, there's an old story about how you cook a frog. Yeah. <clears throat> you know, the way to cook a frog is you put them in the really comfortable pot of water mm -hmm. and you turn the heat up really slowly over time and they boil. It's awful. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but but it is the illustration that makes sense to me. Yeah. Is that, you know, uh, again, I think with young people in particular, um, I think that them experimenting with alcohol, with pot, there's nothing shocking about that. And every parent, I think, wants to believe that their kids are like everybody else. And that's just what they're doing is they're experimenting mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, you try to address it in an appropriate way. Um, and so it's not like, you know, you go from one day going, everything is fine. And tomorrow you wake up and you realize, oh, my God, we're in this big crisis. You know, I think it took about three years, mm. you know, with my son for me to fully appreciate what was happening. And as a part of that, to fully appreciate um, how I wasn't really being helpful as much as I was trying. Um, and so, like I said, I think finally for me and for him, it, it was the day that I kind of got out of the way and said, you know, I'll help you get help. But I got nothing else. Wow. That's a powerful note to end on, I think. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Moore, for coming by and for sharing. You're welcome. It's a pleasure to be here. That's it for this episode of the Mar Experience Stories of Recovery. I'm Matt Shedd. 
Our co-producer is Angela Edmonds, and David Tate is our executive producer. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time.